Joanne Acolytis sat down with moderator Anne Catanio for a one-on-one interview in November of 1995. I'm Susan Stroman, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our one-on-one conversation with Joanne Acolytis. I'm David Diamond, Executive Director of the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation, and I'm happy to welcome you all here this afternoon to Arts Connection. I just wanted to thank Arts Connection for allowing us to use this beautiful space of theirs. I wanted to draw your attention to the back of your program where you'll notice um, our upcoming events are listed there. I hope you can join us for those as well. Come on in. Feel free to come down close. We're a small group, but we should uh, still feel comfortable here. I wanted to mention that uh, I'm very pleased that our interviewer this afternoon is literary manager of Lincoln Center Theater, Ann Catania. So um, without further ado, I'll turn it over to Ann and uh, enjoy the afternoon. Okay, thank you. Um, I wanted to ask Joanne to start uh, at the beginning by telling us um, what you were doing in your life, what you were reading, who you were influenced by, that led you to think of directing for the first time. Perhaps not wanting to be a director for the first time, but how did you first direct? And where were you um, intellectually and artistically at that time? Uh, and maybe even physically in the world at that time? Uh, I was in New York. Um, I was working with Madeline Lines. And one of my minds is it's the, the 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 transition from being an actor to being a writer to being a designer to being a director is organic and sometimes even net one could say necessary. So it wasn't a big deal for me to be a director. And I, I became a director relatively late. Um, I didn't think about directing, I was not driven with a burning desire or ambition to be a director, uh, I I sort of fell into it, actually. And once I started directing, I loved it. Because I, what I realized was that it, would, it suited my personality. Because I am a control, controlling person, a control freak. I'm bossy. I'm aggressive. I have a lot of ideas. I like to have take responsibility. Um, I like to think of myself as a leader. You know, none of these are, you know, it's, it's natural for directors to be those kinds of people, and they should be those kinds of people. If they're not, then they better do something else, maybe. Um, and what I was reading, uh, what I was intellectually involved with at the time uh, was. I would say for about 20 years after I stopped reading fiction, and now I'm reading fiction again, I was involved in reading about science and anthropology and sociology and politics and literary criticism and uh, a kind of 
academic reading, which I enjoyed very much. Mm -hmm. I asked that question because, uh, and I want to stay there for a second, because I think when you, when you start something in your career, you, you are informed by a vision of what theater can be or what theater is or how you see the theater, which I have found sort of marks your life in the theater. So I'm wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about, about when you started, and you, you were an actor before you were a director, but when you made that transition, um, how did you see the theater in the world? Uh, I, I just go back to this, this thing I've always said, that this is sort of a joke, there are two kinds of people in the theater, the people who went into the theater because they read Artaud, and the people who went into the theater because their mother took them to see Kiss Me Kate. And I, I think that that does sort of inform, no matter whether you're directing Shakespeare or, you know, a play, a little bit of, of where you're coming from and what theater can do. So maybe you can't answer it in one of those two options, but... Um, well, I am both, actually. I, I am that my mother came to see South Pacific, <laughs> and I saw a woman wash her hair on stage, and I didn't, at the time, I was 14 years old, I didn't know what it meant, but it meant a lot. It meant that theater was an arena where anything was possible. And then I saw, a couple of years later, when I was in university, I saw a lot of the poet, and I discovered Cocteau. And then I saw uh, Orson Welles, um, Citizen Kane. So uh, those were the things that were happening. And, they, and so, so for me, there's no division between, uh, then I read Artaud also. So for me, Artaud and South Pacific are really connected. <laughs> a lot of people, I, I, I've asked this question, of, I asked it of John Barry, said, oh, I was reading Artaud in the lobby when I saw Auntie May. <laughs> I'm sure he was, and he probably was understudying it also. <laughs> Um, but talk to me a little bit about, about it, it, may be, it may be a vision of theater that, that Nebuman shared, but, but how did you, what, what are the possibilities of theater? Who did you want to play to? What was it about? Was it about making a place for ideas? Was it a sort of activist place in the way that the living theater was performing back then? What was it? Was it a place for ideas? Was it a place for the world of literature that you loved to find its way onto the stage? What was it to you? Who, who was it? Where was it? Who came? And, what was that dream about Well, with Mountain Lines, it was very much a, a theater of the time. The tone of the theater was a theater for artists. So, it, it, and in that sense, it was an elitist, urban, uh, educated audience who came to our work. We were not interested in theater audiences. We were interested in art audiences because our influences in the late 60s came from what was happening in the, in the world of painting, sculpture, and perform, performance art in which, you know, painters were performing and performers were painting and dancers were talking and, um, you know, it was the time when Rauschenberg did his uh, roller skating piece and Yvonne Rader did the line as a muscle. So we were intoxicated with that atmosphere, which was indeed a very petty atmosphere. And those were the people that we thought were special people. And we, we, when we started to perform, we performed at art galleries and not so much in theaters, and not in, in fact not at all in theaters. Personally, I actually felt unhappy after a while with that elitist audience and wanted a different audience. I was interested in theater audiences. I was interested in so-called normal theater audiences, people who go to Broadway and, uh, you know, people who live in the suburbs. That those, I, would, I wanted to do theater for those people, not for people like myself. And eventually, it, it's why I stopped working 
in a, with a small company whose ideals were about art and got involved in the sort of big world of theater, so-called regional theater, and started directing plays around America, which I found very, very stimulating. The company was not political. It was, in fact, sort of anarchic. I mean, there was no, there was no ideal about politics or what theater should be, it could be, or how we wanted to change it. I mean, the, the, our ideals were the ideals of excellence and finding a performing technique that was that belonged to uh, an American sort of um, achievement that was personal and yet very, very stylized and technical. We were also interested in things that people at that time in theater weren't interested in, for example, literature, uh, for example, collaborations with visual artists. And I think Babylonians were pioneers in all of those areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Were there other um, uh, theater people at the time that you knew, or that you had any sense of, you know, work that you saw, any sense of interaction? Um, you know, I mean, again, Richard Foreman or you know, the Living Theater, and just sort of thinking of that scene back then. Or were you guys kind of working on your own? There was a group called A Bunch of Experimental Theaters, which was started by Jed Wheeler, and it was a practical mechanism for booking. And that group was Richard Foreman, what was then the performance group, Richard Checkman performance group, which came, became the Rooster Group, Bob Wilson, Meredith Monk. I can't remember who else. But it was sort of all of the lively downtown theaters. And I enjoy those meetings a lot. I because not only did we talk about business and money, but we, it was fun hanging out with those people. I mean, there, nothing profound ever happened, but it was quite pleasant. Um, and you know, eating and then going to the bar afterwards. It was you know kind of cozy. Uh, the Living Theater was really sort of before the Living Theater was in Europe. The Living Theater. It's, in, in its path, separated itself from, and, and, and indeed the Living Theater were the vanguard mm -hmm. of the avant-garde in, in, the, in the late 50s, even in, in, in New York, when their collaborations with people like Paul Goodman or po poets, their early productions of Brecht were very important, very important theater. And for me personally, when I was living in Paris in the 60s, I think one of the greatest events in my life uh, as a spectator was I hitchhiked to the south of France and I saw the premier production of Frankenstein, which changed my life. It was outdoors. I, I've never, I, I don't think, it's perhaps one of the two or three great performances I've ever seen in my life. And I remember, I, and the ambiance was quite, quite, you know, wonderful. And Jonas Mikas was making a movie of it. And then later, I went to Berlin to see to visit the Living Theater and tried to join the Living Theater, but they they didn't want me. <laughs> Are you sad or happy with that? <laughs> no, I think things worked out. Things worked out pretty good, as they always do. Okay. Um, so, so moving then into the into the mid to, to late seventies, how did you begin to make that transition into? As you put it, a more into the regional theaters into a more normal audience. Uh, well, I think is that what you want to do? Not artist audience. Well, someone 
people all over the world. And you know, what was happening in the 70s was, you know, the regional theater movement was this lonely movement born in the late 60s with these buildings in various cities and not much happening in these buildings. And then there was a very lively theater culture in New York and some other places. And finally, those theaters caught on and they started hiring various directors from that movement, like Bob Wilson and like Richard Foreman and like myself. They finally figured, oh, well maybe there's a connection between art and theater. And uh, I thought that was a good idea on their part. And where did you work? Um, where? In members and productions from now? Well, I liked very much directing in-game at uh, ART. I like I working at the Guthrie. I like I like all those places. Um, I, I now don't particularly like to leave New York. Mm -hmm. And certainly one of the most pleasant parts of working at the public theater was that I walked to work. Mm -hmm. and, and it meant a lot. It, it, it wasn't just the convenience of walking to work. I was in a community. I, I was working in a theater that was part of my community. It was downtown. And it was a public theater. And it was a place that I had had 17 years of life as a theater artist in. And that means a lot because I, when I walked down the street, I saw subscribers, or people came up to me and talked about the season, or I saw Antonio Pagan, who's the council person for that, for the Lower East Side. I would see him in his own political district, also in our own artistic district. All right, let me let me uh, change tracks a second. Um, I, I always am curious with directors. How do you, uh, how are you drawn to certain plays? Is it a, a matter of uh, you reading and sort of noodling in your own world among fiction, poetry, whatever you're reading, science, um, and a play that you know finding resonance to that? Are you, uh, do you read new scripts? Uh, are you drawn to certain writers over and over again? I mean, how do you, if I were to ask you, what are the uh, the next three or four plays that you'd like to direct, and I'll ask you that. What are they, and uh, how did you come to them? How do you, how do you, how do certain plays resonate with you um, at any given time in your life? Uh, well, sometimes you get on a sort of kick and you just read someone's work, like O'Neill or Tennessee Williams. You just, you, know, you just want to be in that world. You just want to be in that delicious world for a while. Sometimes people will say, hey, you know, this is a, this is a play for you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the theater calls up and says, you want to direct this play. And it may be a play, I don't know. Uh, or it may be a very smart instinct on the part of the theater to put me with the play. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, it's a rather haphazard way of doing it. Mm -hmm. It's sort of being open to it, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I try to read new scripts, mm -hmm. and one knows after reading three pages whether it's for you or not. You, you, know, you, you know. So it's not even whether the play is, is good or, or bad. It's just, I can't, I don't get it. It's just not, it's not part of, it's not for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very drawn to 
Shakespeare. I'm very drawn to Strindberg and Buchner and Janae and Tennessee Williams and uh, Gorky. Uh, and I like the Japanese a lot, really a lot. And I'm very drawn to the Greeks. Do you have a, a, a short list of plays that you that you were sort of preparing in your head in some way, or plays that you've always wanted to direct? Well, I want to direct written play by Strindberg, The Bacchae. Um, I want to do more Tennessee Williams, but it probably won't happen. Might be said. Because Bob Falls will direct all of them. I'd like to do the screens, the nice play the screens again. I'd like to do the balcony again. Um, I, I'd like to direct um, Heracles, Shakespeare, and Women Beware of Women. I can't even remember the guy who wrote it. It's like the Marston. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful play. So those are, you know, in, but you know, in the, in the life of a director, it's astonishing how few plays over a lifetime one does get to direct. Mm -hmm that one feels one needs to direct. I mean, I feel I need to direct more and become selectra. Mm -hmm. But I'm not so sure theaters are so interested in that play. I think they're interested in A Touch of the Poet and Long Day's Journey Tonight. So uh, theaters are not too interested in, the kind of, in what's called, what are called the difficult masterpieces, especially now in a climate of um, endangered funding and um, audience, dwindling audiences. Those choices are, are they're, they're serious choices for an artistic director. They're hard choices for an artistic director. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you think of the theater like um, Circle in the Square that you can, that's where I last saw when he becomes a director, but had a whole pool of actors, great actors, who were, you know, coming to that play perhaps at number four or five in a canon and knew the work well and that, mm -hmm. that whole way of making theater doesn't really exist at the same time. Take us through a little of your the way that you work with play. We could talk about um, in the summer house or we could talk about something you've done more recently. If you could sort of share a little bit about how you approach text, how you prepare your production work with your designers um, and then actually how you work in rehearsal to well, I know, but this is a little bit take, pick an example and tell us a little bit about how you approach it. I, I, I'm sure I don't approach a play any differently than any other director. Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I don't know how I do. Directors never know what the other director does in the room, but the drama tricks have been in rooms with everyone. Uh, it's not different, but it's interesting. I, I, you know, it, I do the research, and I have fascinatingly intense meetings with designers, which are very important to me, really important to me. I and you have a pretty regular team of people that you that that you don't work with every time, but there's certain 
key people who come back into your life, it seems like. I try, yes, but I also try to work with new designers because I think you, you sort of get stuck. Mm-hmm. And in, in that way, I'm not, in, in having a group that I keep, I am very attracted to, not just the work, but the, the, the tone of communication, the level of discourse is, is, is quite thrilling to me. Uh, so when you get a new designer, it's like, you know, having a new lover or something, you have to run talk and figure out who that person is and what you know, taste and technique and all of that enters into that relationship. But I don't want to get stuck with my guys. I don't want to get stuck. Uh, I want to sort of keep those doors open. And that, it takes me a long, I, I don't automatically pick up the phone and call George Stephen and Jennifer Tipton. I, I agonize about it. I agonize about who is the right designer for this project. Because it is not the case that the designers that I adore are necessarily the right designers for every project I do. So I have these meetings at which not much is said. They've been very intuitive, clumsy, odd, meetings that we have. And I do, I like to do research very much. What kind of research? Any kind. So, for example, with Jane Bowles, it was a lot of fun to read everything ever written by and about Jane Bowles. Because she was indeed a great, not only a great writer, a fascinating person. And the same with Tennessee Williams, the same with, you know, Shakespeare play, the same with, I'm, I'm preparing for Springboard play now, Dance of Death. I know nothing about that part of the world. I know nothing about 19th century Scandinavian culture. I I, I didn't even know that Strindberg wrote novels, and he did write wonderful novels. So it's it's wonderful for me now being lost in his world with him. Uh, I also like doing the research about the period, not just the period of the writer, but the period of the, the place, the play. So for me, it's, you know, they, you know, I hear people say often about classical productions, I say, well, where are you setting it? They say, well, we're not really setting it anywhere, which really confuses me because you can't do that. If you're not, you've got to set it, I and mean, if you put a chair on the stage, that's a contemporary chair, and you're, you're, you're setting it in 1995. So once you make that decision that it's, okay, it's in this Swedish island in whatever, 1895, there's a lot that comes with that decision. And a lot of those things are terribly, terribly fascinating things about culture, sociology, art, psychology, spirituality, literature, the world, the works. Um, I like working with dramaturgs. I like working with the script. I like knowing the script before rehearsal. I don't like knowing it too well. So I don't spend a lot of time on the script. And then I get in rehearsal and I rehearse the play. And, and why don't you like knowing the script too well? Because I don't want to know anything too well. Because um, I, I, I like... Well, first of all, I'm not an intellectual person. And uh, I believe, in a very naive way, admittedly, that one should continually surprise oneself 
in the rehearsal room and one, one should go to the theater and be continually surprised and the actors on in the rehearsal process should be surprising themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I want to, to leave those murky, dark, scary places there for me to jump into with the actors or alone at night as I do. And I, I also think there's, that one gets to know it better. And, and I never could stand. I never can stand up uh, to a company of actors on the first day of rehearsal and say, "This is my vision. This is what this play is about." All you people jump on the bandwagon. I I can't do that. I don't know what the play is about. I really don't know what the play is about. And I think that kind of that practice is is something that we inherit from a, basically a male European uh, theater practice, which is a guy. It's usually a guy who stands up. And, says, this is my vision. And, it's, and, it, and, it, and it often is intellectual. And it's not to put it down. It's just not my way of doing it. I respect it, but it's not my way of doing it. So I don't spend much time around the table doing so-called table work. And it's because I'm kind of easily, I'm, I'm, because I'm impatient, because I'm dying to see the, the, the play in space. I like to do certain exercises with a, a company that have to do with movement and exercises that I've developed over the years. And I believe that when people move together, they understand one another in a um, irrational, physical, communicative, deep way that uh, provides a um, provides for a kind of uh, bravery and communication in the rehearsal room that is important to me. I, I, want, I want you to say how you think I rehearse. Well, so far I would agree with you. Uh, you, have a, you might want to talk about something. You have a very um, interesting journey. starts rehearsals with everybody moving. It starts the whole rehearsal process with everybody moving, and then each day, and it, it does take you out of a, a thinking place and put you into a place. And everybody does this. Um, stage managers moving. It's not that people are watching people move. Where, where you begin to feel yourself as part of a company. Um, and then uh, that moves directly into looking at the scenes on their feet. I was going to well, ask you, um, talk a little about blocking. How you like to do it, when you like to do it. I, I like to do it right away. So my job, and it's the hardest thing, and it makes me sick, is to block the play. My first job is to block the play, and and by block it, to sketch it in space, to put the to, to, to sort of put the shape of it in, in on into the rehearsal room, and then once that's done, I just go back and keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. Now none of that work precludes what an actor needs, which is to sit down and go through each scene beat by beat phrase by phrase, so that the actor understands her and his emotional work, so that the actor is not neglected. And I know it, it, it can bug actors sometimes and put them in a little bit of a panic. They think, oh God, she's on his feet already, she's got us on, on our feet, what are we going to do, and you know, carrying the script around. And it's, it's, it's for me, and if it, it's very much for me, but if an actor can see her way, to, to the liberation 
that being a body in space provides, it can be very exciting. And it does happen. So for me, it's all about, it's, it, it, it's, it's all about perfecting that space, and the space is extremely important. Now, there are some actors who are sort of natural at it. Most actors are. Most <coughs> actors want to be told exactly what to do. And that's what I'm there to do. Uh, and they often are, it's, it's sort of, it's this interesting tension between you're telling me exactly what to do, and why don't you tell me what to do? <laughs> you know. And is there, is there a moment um, when you are working with the actor in the rehearsal room where you come to an understanding of the scene or, or something is revealed to you? Is that what you try and work through or, or towards? Yeah, I, I wish it were a sort of you know, Satori experience and kind of there, that there, there it is. It's more about being on the right track than getting it. Sometimes there are those, ma and often there are those magic moments when there's a run through in the rehearsal room and everything comes together in a way that is moving perfect transcendent. And then it never happened again. And, and it's very sad. It's, 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 um, so you have to kind of give up trying to get that back. Uh, it, it, it's, um, it's always about work. And I think it's, all, it's always about work in tech, and it's always about work in previews, and, it's, and it should be about work in performance. It, the work should never stop. The actor should never stop working, which does not mean that the actor has permission or is empowered to make major changes in the emotional or physical shape of the show. But it, 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 once the work stops, then it becomes dead. Mm -hmm. So what I like is I like things to be sort of under-rehearsed mm -hmm. so that the actor has a lot of work to do in previews and in the run of the show. Actors don't like that. Mm -hmm. I like it. Um, because I do. Because mm -hmm. I, I don't, I don't want to see it all perfect. It's very boring to me, as I think it is to many actors, uh, many directors. It's very boring and also painful to go back and see work. I hate it. I, I just can't stand it. I, I, on to the next thing, and I also think it's pretty awful when I see it. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about acting. Um, what kind of, what do you look for in, in an actor? Do you, uh, are you looking for a certain emotional quality connection to the work? Is there a certain kind of actor that you like to work with? Do you see something in audition? Do you have certain actors you like to work with regularly? Can you just talk a little bit about who, who the actors are that you, that you uh, search for to realize what you're doing in the actors? Well, I think the most important thing is emotional connection to the work. It, 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 the, uh, the, 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 and it's, this seems like an obvious thing to say. It's an actor. That's what they're supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not, you know, it's not necessarily the case. That, that, that the, the, the habit of being emotional, of the habit 
of, of, of not self-censoring is very important. And that does not mean being self-indulgent. And so that, that what I call acting from the soles of one's feet really interests me. I love to see exposed, pure, ballsy, emotional acting. I'm interested in actors who are smart and collaborative, who like to work physically, who are generous, who are flexible, um, who have a sense of humor and don't get hung up and call you at midnight and cut a line and change something. Um, <laughs> I, I love actors. I'm crazy about actors. I, I, I adore them. I can't get over what they do. I, I, I'm in awe of what an actor, what an actor has to do. Um, I think, I think, unlike many directors, you're all you're known for not only working on Strindberg and Shakespeare. But also, you've done quite a bit of, um, of work where, where you have really created the piece, either taken from writings um, or a made piece. You came into the uh, director's lab. We had at Lincoln Center last June with Michael Ondaatje, the novelist, to work on an adaptation of his Running in the Family, working on a Jack Kerouac piece. Can you talk a little bit about how you like to work on these, I don't know what you even call them, sort of conceptualized pieces or things that are you know, drawn from, from other works of literature? You, you know, I don't know what's going on with me now. I, I thought I was never going to do that again. I thought I stopped doing that 15 years ago. And now I'm back into literature. I don't know why. It's so hard. It's so interesting. It's so open. Um, I think I want to talk to the audience. I think I want, I'm, I'm interested in actors actually talking, looking at the audience and talking to them rather than talking to one another. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about today, why am I doing this now? Aside from the obvious, you know, I'm interested in the, the fiction of Janae, I'm interested in Michael Andachi, and I'm terribly interested in the moment at Jack Kerouac because I'm working at Jack Kerouac. So it's not like I have a, a you know, aesthetic agenda. It's it's, first of all, it is very open. It is open. And it, it, it also, not enough things in theater. Just plays are theater. And unfortunately, for the critics, especially of the New York Times, well-made plays are theater. Not even the faulty ones really count. So it's, it's just gotten so narrow. What, what, is, what, what theater is. And it's not that I want to bust the way to break down barriers or anything like that. It's, it's fun for the moment. <laughs> okay. Tell us a little about the Kerouac piece. Well, I'm working with five actors now on Jack Kerouac and his entire oeuvre, which is, you know, it's like a refrigerator box filled with books, and he really wrote a lot. He wrote a lot of letters. And I think he is in the pantheon of the great American writers with Walt Whitman, Melville, Hawthorne, uh, Hemingway. I think he is just way up there as a stylist and as a poet, as a purely Amer pure American poet. To my delight, 
and gratitude because you know I'm working on it is plays it's dramatic I think it plays it's very dramatic language um, and I'm trying to figure out why Kerouac is so important now why the beats why you know there's this show with the Whitney this beat, beat show and there was a conference at NYU Jack Kerouac conference and pe- people were you know, riots of people getting trying to get in, and the people trying to get in were people in their twenties. So I, I think, in some way, the culture is back to the Eisenhower late fifties, early sixties, which is where I come from. Where the most exciting thing that ever happened in my entire youth was Chuck Berry's Rock Around the Clock, and nothing else for years and years and years and years and years and years. And years. So I, I, I think that we inherit, we can't underestimate the, what, what young people, without even knowing it, have inherited from the abysmal Reagan-Bush years <laughs> for the spiritual climate of the country. I mean, it's, you know, Clinton didn't save the country. The country's still in some deadly place where people really want to iron clothes and watch TV. Maybe I don't know, and that's why. Uh, and also personally, you know, I kind of I find that that I work I am working on something because it meant something to me when I was 23 years old, and I remember exactly what I was wearing when I read On the Road, and I I in my naive little Midwestern soul thought that one could lead an unencumbered, free, bohemian life instead of the repressed sculpture, uh, repressed you know, the structured little life that I was leading as a university student. So I, I, I remember it. I remember it, it, I, it kicked me into, I, I was inflamed by that book. And so it, it's not an accident that I've come back to it because it, it's an important book of my use. Does it still good? That's better. That's <laughs> <laughs> funny, I taught, um, the theater and its double, Julia, to the first year acting students last year who were all, you know, 18 or something, thinking, oh, they're just going to find this hokey. And they were inflamed by it. <laughs> it's a pretty, I recently was taking a look at it. It's a, it is an inflamed book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also working with a, on a new play by Steve Tessich. Do you want to talk a little about that process? Well, I can't, it's until, right I can't until he rewrites it. <laughs> he used to rewrite it. He, re- rewrite, he rewrites so massively and so often that I'm afraid to say anything about the play, like even who, what the characters are or what it's about, because maybe he'll really change it. <laughs> no, we started. Steve and I have started. The, the, we start rehearsal in the spring, and uh, Doug Stein is designing it, and it's a nice reunion for me with Doug, because I haven't worked with him for a number of years. And uh, Susan Hilferty, who I've always wanted to work with, and we we had a really painful design meeting. It was painful for me because for about an hour and a half, I thought Steve kept saying, "It's a living room on Central Park West." And finally, I said, "I could never direct anything that's a living room on Central Park. I don't know how to do it. I didn't even know what to do if they walked in on the stage and they sat." So we it ended up being. A really stimulating talk about how you could put on the stage that Central Park Westness <laughs> without it being a naturalistic set. And I have a clue. 
I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know, how you came to that play and a little bit about that process, the one character piece and how that was. Request Concert is a play by Franz Xavier Kreutz, who's a German pilot, who um, I think is relatively uh, famous in Germany. He was a member of the Communist Party, very political guy. I, I think he quit the Communist Party. It's a play about, uh, it's a, a play without any language, without any words. And basically it's a story of a working class woman who comes home from work and goes through various activities in, in, in real time, in a real way, listening to a popular German radio program called Request Concert. And at the end of the evening, which was a relatively short evening, say an hour and 15 minutes, she takes a couple sleeping pills to go to sleep. Then she takes all the sleeping pills, and that's the end of the play. It was very successful. It was very successful here. I changed it to, I said it in what I call Queens. I know a lot about Queens right now. It's really not what I think Queens is. And, and since we really don't, we can't connect in, in New York to real working class people, we, don't, we, we connect more to sort of bookkeepers. We see a lot of working women. And, and it was very moving to me, the plight of, and what the course was talking about in his play of, work, of working women, and I don't know why, it's, it's men too, who don't have spiritual resources in an urban society, capitalist society. They don't, have, they don't really have a church. Some people don't have families. They don't have close friends. People go home and they are alone. People, and, and what I find so wonderful about his work is that I think he may be the only writer, major writer, who writes about working class people, who writes, who writes about the trauma of what has happened to the working class in, West, in Western culture. The, the Colette Brooks, who was a dramaturg, brought me the play, and, I, and she said, you have to direct it. And I said, well, I, I, I read it, and it just knocked me out. I said, I can't direct it. It's too perfect being read. You know, I, I can't do better than reading it. And, and then they bugged me enough so that I didn't have to do it. And um, it was very hard. I mean, it was just awful to direct a play with one actress, and, and the women's interior where there never was any heat, and the elevator was broken, and we had to walk up 10 floors often. I mean, sort of the hardship, the hardship part was hard, and then the spiritual hardship part was hard. And about a woman alone, about suicide, to direct a play about suicide, and a play that was about these super realistic details. And so we would be all, you know, endless shopping for toothpaste and what kind of deodorant she used and what kind of toilet paper she bought and what kind of um, nightgown she wore. And the, the, certainly it was an important collaboration because the actress, Joan McIntosh, was brilliant. I mean, she, she went for this. You know, she went through this body and soul. And, uh, you know, I, I rehearsed it and left, and she kept doing it for months and months and months and months and months. Had a really long run. And um, she was not only, she's not only a brilliant actress, she's a great collaborator. When you're talking before about how you, you know, you come to the process not knowing everything and not wanting to know everything, but uh, 
did you learn with her through that process more something more about that piece? You well, you always do. I mean, if, you know, if you work with um, good actors with good intentions, you always learn a lot. You, you learn it. The actors teach the director. Right. Um, something else I wanted to ask. Oh yeah. Um, the process of going from being a director and working in a company to being an artistic director. Um, did you find like being an artistic director? Um, was that a valuable experience, and how how did it affect you as a director? Were you, were you too much an administrator? Or how, how did that experience? Mm -hmm. Well, the one thing about Madden Lines is that Madden Lines is everyone is equal, so everyone is co-artistic directors. Yeah. So I was in, in Madden Lines. Not only was I the ground laid for me to be a director, the ground was laid for me to be an artistic director because I did. Performs. I was the treasurer of Nine Lines for years, which is like the biggest joke in the world, especially in our politics. That was like, it's unbelievable. Um, so I, it, I did have experience with funding, with get, trying to get money, writing grant applications, budgets. Um, I knew a lot about so-called administrative tasks. So, be, but it was the difference between being involved in a small company and then going to a company with a budget of $10 million. And that, first of all, was an enormous responsibility. Secondly, the volume of work that artistic directors, the people who run cultural institutions, you have to do cannot be uh, underestimated. It's really a lot of work. But to be a good artistic director is not is not uncreative. It's very exciting to make things happen, and it's very exciting to commission plays, and it's exciting to produce plays. It's creative. It's really creative. I don't think it affects one's directing, except you don't have enough time to do it. But, you know, directors anyway are not dreamy artistic types. If you direct plays in theaters around America, you have to go into these meetings with production managers who say, tomorrow by, you know, 10, 15, you have to cut $7,000 off the budget of this show. And, you know, that, that's not like microsurgery or something. You know, it's not like someone's sh you know, shaving you know, little pieces off your brain molds. It's, re it's real work. It's, re it's very practical. So you say, okay, what are we going to talk about? Oh, my God, how do we do it? It's very, very practical to be a director, to manage time, to manage people to sort of put teams together, to make sure work is, is coming out on deadlines to set oneself. So you know, doing theater is enormously practical and down to earth. When you were bringing other artists into, into the theater, what did you look for in directors? I and mean, what kind of directors were you looking to, to bring in to produce their work as an artistic director? 
well, you know, it's an interesting directors, and that sounds, sounds stupid, but I didn't want directors like I didn't feel as an artistic director that I should have clones of myself, and I don't even think they exist, but or any director. So it, it was a question of finding the right director for the material. So all of that was no. It was all one hodgepodge. So it was a whole big, there was a whole big bucket, and in that bucket were interesting writers, and interesting designers, and interesting directors, and in that bucket was also issues of equality, like how many, how many women, people of color, directors, is this theater interested in, and is this theater going to hire, and how many plays by people of color and women is this theater going to commission? So I, I, I mean, there was a social agenda. I had a social political agenda, and it was very important to me, as it should be to any, you know, as in, in any cultural institution, it should be. So all of those things were happening at the same time. So it wasn't, let us pick the seven great plays. There was, there was, there was a tendency to, to really start with material, to sort of say, what seven events, dramatic events, or eight or ten, should we do next season? And then who, who fits those events? And some of those events were music events, and some of those events were classical plays, and some of those events were new plays. Um, so, open it up to um, questions from anybody, and we can have a on the discussion. Um, does anybody have any questions? Yeah, Abby? Do you feel, um, you know, as a young female director, Diane, I mean, first of all, I noticed such an absence of mentoring and mentors in our artistic community. And I don't know, and I've talked to other women directors, and they've told me, oh, you can't talk to men directors. The experience is totally different. You can't compare it. Can I even have a conversation with them? Um, you know, and I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that women directors need a whole separate support system and community, or do you think they can sort of be umbrellaed under emerging male directors? Um, and how do you see sort of this, the, the climate or the community sort of be friendlier toward mentoring younger directors? Um, for instance, right now I'm involved in a program that the Steppenwolf Theaters launched, um, which is their way right now of saying we're going to take on some emerging directors. They chose four of us. And they don't feel even still like they know how to do it. Even the program that I'm in, it's sort of like I'm slapped together with a playwright and I'm supposed to kind of know how to be a dramaturg. But there's no... Um, I don't know, there's no sense of, of, of anywhere to go in terms of people taking a chance on you or investing in your career. And some people have told me, oh, the climate's changed 10 years ago when I came out, there were mentors, and now it's not. I'm drawing a couple of different things in but uh, I mean, what do you think about in terms of uh, if it's different at all being a young woman director? Oh, well, it's not equal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's not a big deal. I mean, I, I do feel that theater 
is remarkable, and I've said it over and over, is remarkably non-hierarchical and non-sexist. In the workings of theater, on the day-to-day workings of theater, because theater is such a low-down, you know, who cares, little part of the society that why treat anybody else worse, you know, than you already are being treated by the economic situation in the theater. I mean, why, you know, why pick on anyone? It's so stupid. So, you know, I, I, I do find that it's, 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 so, it's great. It, the big picture is important because in the big picture, Women in theater don't have power, power they deserve and should have, as women in medicine don't, or women in government, or women in, well, you, you know, it's just, you know, we all know that. So, but do I think women directors need special mentors? I mean, that, that, that could lead to ghettoizing women who are already marginalized enough. And I don't know what to think about things. What? I kind of think so when I was saying that. I think that for, for any young emerging directors, I'm talking about a way to establish any, any kind of mentoring system. I'm talking about for women if there needed to be more of a support system. Just other women, you know, either women who have any power at all in the artistic community, you know, making special efforts, or just women themselves, directors having groups or any, you know, kind of extra support system. Well, see, I think you should make your own support system, which is an obvious thing. You just said group. You know, when I was uh, on the board of TCG, and I was extremely miserable because I felt the artists on that board were uh, ghettoized. And myself, Doug Stein, Eduardo Machado, Jennifer Tipton, and David Wong had a drink one night, and we said, you know, screw them, let's start our group and talk to one another. And we did. So we started a group in my apartment, and that group grew enormously. And the group was writers, directors, actors started to come too. The group grew so much that we went to new dramatists. It was a lot of fun. Then the group died. It was nice. We were we supported one another because we. I realized when the FTCG board sat down and they said we're going to make our five-year plan. The last thing on the list was artists. And then all of the members of the, the task force were managing directors of theaters. You know, like, what is wrong with this picture? So we, that, that died a natural death. And I'm a big fan of groups, of, of salons, of clubs. I, I went out the other night with with Ann Bogart, who was going to be here next week, and Chiori Nigawa, who's a playwright and a director and an old colleague of mine from the public theater, we, we decided to start a book club. <laughs> <laughs> and we decided we're not going to invite theater people except us into it. <laughs> we have to know other kinds of people. Um, <laughs> because I'm, I want to talk about books. I want to talk about it in an organized format. So we have a book club. So you, you young directors should, yes, have get together, have support systems, even if it's formalized if meetings at new dramatists or meetings in someone's living room. Because talking about talking about anything is great, and talking about everything is great. When you talk about a mentoring system, it sort of scares me because I see a mentor relationship is much 
more haphazard and much more kind of user-friendly and, uh, you know, accidentally, I may have a mentor system myself around my dinner table of various young directors and actors and theater artists that I invite over to my apartment and for, for dinner. I am not consciously being a mentor to anyone, nor do I think I want to be, because I don't understand it, it's too much responsibility, and I don't like systems like that. So what you're saying is you're saying there are no sort of older people to talk to about it, is really what you're saying. I feel like the climate, I feel like, and this is such a silly thing to say, but I almost feel like very, very established directors um, who are way more established than I, and, and a lot of women and men, it's, it's almost as if they're like hanging on to their careers, you know, by such a thread, and they're still like climbing their way up the ladder that it's almost like I'm a threat to them. You're telling me. When I was on that TCG board, and we used to sit around and talk about who's going to get that $15,000 in that NEA thing. We wanted to apply. I wanted to apply to get one of those fifteen thousand. Yeah, and, and then I had assistants, on a lot of those TCG people's assistants, who had bigger resumes than I have had. Big, enormous press packets. <laughs> we're leaving rehearsal to go out and pitch to have meetings with artistic directors in, in LA or something like that. I said, where are you going? He said, well, have a meeting with someone. I said, well, we're rehearsing. <laughs> there is, you see, what I think has happened, which is very different from my generation, my group of directors like Richard Foreman or Bob Wilson, people who did not study theater, who were not trained, who came at it in varied and odd ways, just became directors, were never assistants to anyone, is that careerism has taken over. Careerism has taken over. So now, if you're at the Guthrie Theater, there's, and it's a, it is a good gig to be the resident, one of the resident direct, directors at the Guthrie, if you get to wear a suit and you get to a slot in the parking lot, you have a key to the theater. And you get to assist all the directors who come here to direct their plays, and you get paid. And you get paid. But I don't, I'm not sure what it means. And I feel that there's too much careerism and not enough just plain old American entrepreneurism on the level of what we did in the early 70s, which is let's get some money and do our own production with our own group of actors and try and get people to see it. You know, like, let's do our own work. And so good old-fashioned directors should be entrepreneurs because if you wait for that, if you get on that regional theater circuit, all it is is you, you get to be an assistant 700 years. Then, and, and what's happening with those TCG grants is that the people are getting older and older. There is not, is no longer an emerging grant. It's like mid-career. It's mid-career, and those TCG directors are running around like maniacs, trying to meet every director in the country and trying to be that director's assistant. So 
want to um, say one thing, I'll get the rest of the questions. Um, you talked about you know, support groups for women, and uh, the foundation, we had that idea as well. We started this women's networking group, um, and what happened was, after a very short time, the women felt strongly that it'd be opened up to men as well, that they felt that all the emerging artists needed the support. So now that is metamorphosed into the director choreographer network, which meets monthly, and um, there, the, the directors there are finding, just what you're talking about, they're finding this kind of exchange and this way of supporting each other that's been really valuable, but um, I'm not sure it, it needed to be a woman-only thing, it sort of evolved by itself into something else. So, yes? Um, I had a, a question from the early part of the
stage directions and what that means to you when you pick up the plan and approach it at work? Well, I don't, you know, I read the stage directions and then I don't pay much attention to them. Mm -hmm. um, but some writers are brilliant writers of stage directions, like Beckett. And Tennessee Williams is also, I mean, Ibsen is just, oh, you know, forget Ibsen, don't even pay any attention to what he's writing. He doesn't know. You know, you sort of, in it, Williams, it's very much a fabric, it's part of the fabric of the play. I think it is with Beckett also, especially with the, the structure of the paw, the rhythm of the play, there's pauses in that. It's not that one is disrespectful to a playwright. It's just you sort of know what you should be. It's common sense that you know what you should pay attention to. I don't believe that directors are interpreters of dramatic literature, of plays, nor do I believe that actors are. I don't believe that theater is an interpretive art. I believe that it is basically a, 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 a transcendent collision of various sensibilities around a script. That the script is the occasion for theater art to show. And the show is not the play. The play belongs in the book, it's dramatic literature. So what you read is very, very different from what happens, what it becomes. Because what it becomes is a singular event that is a combination of script, actors, lights, scenery, costumes, audience. It's unique. Uh, you know, Beckett was mad because it was about the set. He didn't like what we did in other music and stuff like that. And um, that happens. You know, writers, you hear writers say, she ruined my play. With a new script, with a brand new script, it's really important to try and do what the writer wants because that's that's a, that's an important that's an important event, the first production of a new script. So I think you know if a play's been around, why the morning becomes Electra, it's just, it's been done and done and done and done. It's 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 not that it's open, but it's quite different from the first production. Yeah. Um, also, going back to something you said earlier, when you said you block first and then you find the emotional life, that surprised me. Um, do you think that your blocking comes from your understanding of the play and the actors can find the emotional life within that? Or, I mean, just what have you run up against with actors when they're blocked before they've found the emotional life? Well, uh, you don't just find the emotional life like you know, you're panning for gold. You're always finding the emotional life. So it's not one event, and it's not, and it doesn't happen in one day. So it's while I'm blocking, they're finding emotional life. While they're eating dinner, they're finding emotional life. While they're, you know, washing their underwear, while they're brushing their teeth, while they're talking to their friends, while they're they're asleep. So it's all happening at the same time. But the blocking is coming from the blocking isn't coming from what you're seeing the actors doing. It's coming from your concept, and then they there no, is there's no concept. I just walk in a room and some just start to play. And you leave it open if they 
find something else to oh, do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I was just going to, you did a wonderful quote, which was the transcending collision that transcends. And I'm just wondering if you could bring two to ten artists that might make a difference, let's say, in New York, and bring them um, back alive. Who are those artists that would rejuvenate our our death crimes in New York and here? Well, I don't, that think, might make I don't think people should be brought back to life. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean I don't have a nostalgia for I don't. The only person I really think about who died recently, two people. And they don't have anything to do with theater. I, I wish they were alive. One is John Cage, who died as an old man. But he had no influence on me at all, on my work at all. I just was glad he lived. I was glad that, you know, that old John Cage was there doing his stuff. <laughs> And Fassbender, uh, the German film director, who died too soon at the height of his creative powers. I think I would be happy if he was still making movies and I was seeing his movies. But no, I, I, I don't think we bring people back. I, don't, I think we do it ourselves. We are the ones. We are the ones who's going to And that's what I want to say. That's what I want to say to you, which is there is a mentorship and there's a ladder that's already there. There's a lot of men in New York City who are missing out on this. And I say it to the camera and to David and to all of us. There's mostly women in this room who are presumably writers, actors, and directors. And you may not mean to be a mentor, but you are. David may not mean to, but he is. And you will, you'll, we all find them. And I think that we should all be for each other. And so my question to David is, are you sending around like a list that the people here so that she can know that there are 15 names that she can call and say, we want to drink and talk about the showboat or Joanne's doing, you know, whatever project. Or, hey, I want to start a company. And I need six has lots of programs that, that try to address that. The directors that out here are supposed to be there. Because, you know, I'm yeah. totally in, I think, you know, maybe only an hour and a half, an hour and 40 minutes. And I think this one should be felt with the students from Juilliard and with um, the young directors and actors. And I'm just totally um, in shock that, that this is not standing room only. Well, I think it's more of a function of my uh, lack of marketing skills. <laughs> <laughs>
any insight from this little room to, to let them know what art is and know what struggling is and to know what suffering is. Yeah, so that they aren't... Well, they know what suffering is. People know what suffering is. There are only millions and millions of people that know what suffering is. And I need to know that it's okay and that we bounce back. I, 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 just want, this I, just I don't want to be perverse, but you know, I, 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 this, I, I, this is this is a very, very tricky time for theater. You have to understand that because because of what's happening with the National Endowment, because of these foundations that are bailing out of theater and the arts, people are not bouncing back. People are finding other professions. They're going to you know chef schools or they're, they're becoming, you know, masseurs or things like that. They're going to, or, you know, physical therapy school. People are being, so it's not a bouncing, it's, it's, it's a quite, you cannot, as Ed Martinson, the executive director of the Guthrie Theater, who's leaving the Guthrie Theater and is leaving theater and one of the most talented management um, guys in, in the uh, non-for-profit theater, he said, you know, we cannot call theater a cultural institution if it does not support its constituents. Literally support, economically. So, you know, I mean, it's, I, it's great to be upbeat and, and, and all that, but I don't, I don't feel particularly upbeat at this point. But Joanne, we have to be. I'm 39. I have to be upbeat for you. I have to be upbeat for you. Well, we have to be. Our generation, and you know what? Our, Uh, I respect your knowledge of the reality of the theater, 
but I'd like to encourage you to keep looking for a production. Hopefully, in New York, so I can see it. He wanted to have these elected. Yeah, that, that would be fun. Yeah, that would be fun. It would be fun. I, you know, we, I wish there were more theater production in New York. I wish we could see. I wish we could see more O'Neill. I wish we could see more Chekhov. It's, I, we need theater. This town needs it. I can't believe you're the round top. We would be thrilled to do more. Composition, some slow motion exercises, stopping and starting exercises, just dancing, just dancing, um, oppositional exercises that um, make the body articulate oppositions, slow, fast, big, small. And do you do that with music or is it just with the actors themselves? Uh, with music and without music. But music is important. You can't you know, talk with funny accents. 
just because that's how you think you interview. You know, the, the sort of obvious ideas about technique and meaning and emotion. So language is, it's, it's not something I get to. But it's the play. I open, this is, I'm directing a play. Stripper. I open Dance of Death. Very intimidating. Ooh. So I, you know, I've read, you know, 18 different translations. Yeah, so which is the best translation of dance? And which, who's going to say those? I mean, how are these words going to be expressed the best? So it's not, you know, there's this, a tendency to think just because you're interested in the physical, you are not interested in meaning and you're not interested in language. Which I am. And the, and the open theater didn't, has not affected my work at all, but I, I had a great time. I went to uh, open theater workshops in, in, it was the late 60s, I had a really good time. And it, they were lively physical events on Monday nights that, um, and then I met interesting people, we had fun. <laughs> I just wanted to follow up on that because maybe part of what you were getting at was uh, about how the, you know, starting out with the movement and getting to the text, having done the movement first or the physical, what does that bring to the actors doing the text, I guess? Does that help the emotional connection get there better? Or? Not necessarily. Not the emotional connection. I mean, that's work, that's very private work that the actor has to do. Personally for me, I don't think it's so easy to walk in a room and rehearse. I, I don't leave my life behind. And for me, it's, I need to warm up. It's warming up. And, and theater is a quite athletic activity. It's really athletic. And sometimes it's physically, really physically athletic. It's tiring, it's hard to be an actor. It means it makes you tired after rehearsal. One is tired, one is beat. And it's because you've worked so hard. So if you're going to work hard for five hours and then later for three hours, it's good to you know warm up to exercise a little bit, and then you're kind of in the mood. It's, you know, it's just starting. For me, it's because I don't know what to do. I don't know how to start. <laughs> so it's killing. <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're gonna wind up. Can we take one more. Sure. One more sure. question. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> you had mentioned Steve Tessich as a contemporary playwright that you're working with. Are there other playwrights uh, or contemporary playwrights that you are either interested in working with or that you've enjoyed working with in the past? Which, which playwrights do you admire? Oh, I like Irene Fornace. I like Eric Overmeyer. Um, I like Liz Eggwall. Uh, I, I, I like. Pony uh, Pushler sometimes, um, or a lot. I like Phyllis Nage, uh, Connie Condon. Um, oh, I, there's a lot of writers I like. Yeah, and last question. One more. What a man. I have about a dozen questions, the least of which is can I come be a part of that group around the dinner table? <laughs> uh, but you, you seem to. The word study keeps coming up in, in as you study. Well, it, it is a study, literally studying. So literally, I am a student of Strindberg. 
you know, it's like, I, you know, literally, I call some woman up who teaches Strindberg in, in Michigan and say, tell me what to read, like a graduate student. And then I go get the books and I read it. I happen to enjoy, I, I happen to find that an enjoyable part of my life. So I couldn't imagine a life in which all I did was rehearse plays and read scripts. I, I, it sounds dull to me. I, I happen also to come from an intellectual background. I studied philosophy in college. I, did, I never studied theater. So all that stuff, that 18th century stuff there that I was reading, Descartes and all those guys, well, it sort of kicked in later. <laughs> and it still kicks in. So that, that habit of being intellectually rigorous does not hurt me as a director or a person. It is useful. It's enriching. And I often choose to do work that I have chosen to do work about stuff that's not maybe normal theater stuff, like polar exploration or alchemy or nuclear energy, stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't think that there's an opposition between demanding material and entertainment in theater and in art. And as far as the study of spirituality, I can't imagine a more um, thrilling vehicle to better oneself, and not in a corny way, but to sort of learn more about community and enlightenment than theater, which is the only live communal art that exists. I mean, if you go to the movies, you're passing Go to, you know, painting, but theater really is engagement between what is happening on the stage and the audience. And often that engagement is spiritually ennobling or uplifting. Usually it's not, but sometimes it is. And the, the activity of doing theater itself is. Is a, is a life enhancing uh, activity. You know, it is a family. It's a, it's a family activity. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have. I can probably go on for another couple of hours. It's really been extraordinary. I want to um, have you join me in thanking Joanne. Again, this is Susan Stroman, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage, made possible through support from Stage Directors and Choreographer Society, the National Theatrical Union celebrating five decades of uniting, empowering, and protecting professional stage directors and choreographers. Visit us online at sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theater is made through the words of the people who make theater. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.